0: Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our Greenbrier campus. Thanks for listening. I want you to hear this as we jump in. I love Christmas, all right? I'm not a Scrooge. I love Christmas, but... December 26th, I'm so excited to see all the decorations go back into the attic. Anybody else? Like, come on, we can... Yeah, clutter drives me crazy. I've discovered that about myself. Uh, Clutter stresses me out. In fact, um, I've seen some studies recently that, that it does that, that clutter actually raises your stress level, right? And I feel that. And so December 26th, man it all needs to go back in the attic. And it's like a therapeutic thing just to see it all go back up, you know, and you sweep the floors and you get your house back. So we've we've been like even going through the kids' rooms uh, this week with big trash bags to kind of declutter the house a little bit, like clothes that don't fit, toys they don't play with, so we can make room for the new clutter that's about to come in uh, this next Sunday, right? And so uh, clutter stresses me out, it drives me crazy. And maybe if you are that way as well, if clutter drives you crazy, well, you're in good company because what we're gonna see today is Jesus doesn't like it either, all right? Jesus doesn't like it. In our text today, it says that he goes into, quote, his father's house, and uh, it's completely cluttered, and Jesus is not a fan. The main point that we're gonna see, the central idea, all right? The central idea for us today is that Jesus is passionate about removing anything that stands in the way of worship. So if you have a Bible, open it with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. As you're turning there, let me kind of set the stage for us a little bit. You know, we started this series in the book of John a a couple of weeks ago. At the beginning part of John chapter 2 is that famous story of Jesus at the wedding, and he turns water into wine. And it's a really happy, fun story. Uh, Everybody's in a good mood. They're at a wedding. It's a celebration. Jesus makes his mom happy. He does what she asks. You know, that's always a good thing. And so uh, he does that. Also, he makes, apparently, the best wine. And so everybody's in a good mood. It's a, it's a good story. The next part of chapter two, where we're gonna study this morning, is completely different. Jesus is not in a good mood, in fact, he's mad. Uh, he's, he's very mad in this story. And the setting, it all takes place in the temple. And the temple is going to be a major theme for us this morning, so there's a couple of things that you need to understand about the temple that was in Jerusalem here at this time. It was kind of the beating heart of Judaism at the time it's a huge complex too. They say like 14 acres or something like that was this whole temple uh, setting, right? So if you've thought of the temple and you just think of maybe like the church on the corner or like uh, you know something like that, that's not this. It's not just a little worship center. It's a, it's a massive place, big stairs that lead into it, massive walls and, and different things like that. And so it was a massive place. It was the center of worship For the Jews. Um, It was also the center of social interaction for the city, and it was the place where national celebrations would take place, like we're going to see today. But most importantly, throughout the Bible, the the temple, the tabernacle, it was the place where God had promised to be in the midst of his people. And what we're going to see today is that setting is all cluttered. All right. Before we jump in and read it, I want us to pray, and I'm going to pray for all of us, and I want to ask you just to pray simply uh, that God would speak to you in your heart uh, in this moment. Let's pray together. God, we, we just want to pause and ask that in this time, as we open your word, that you would do what only you can do, and that is speak to us and change our hearts. There's nothing that I could say that's going to do any kind of change or, or have any kind of effect on each of us, and so we're asking that you, through the Spirit, would speak to us and change our hearts and we're asking that we would listen and have the courage and boldness to respond we love you and we're listening it's in jesus name i pray amen all right john chapter 2 look at verse 13 with me we'll pick up in verse 13 it says this the jewish passover was near and so jesus went up to jerusalem in the temple he found people selling oxen sheep and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. And he told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, "Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in 3 days." And Jews said, "This temple took 46 years to build, and you and you're going to raise it up in 3 days?" But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. All right, there's a lot going on here uh, this morning. We're going to look at it from the theme of the temple and everything that's going on in this story. I want to show you three things that have to do with the temple that also help tell this story. Number one, we see the temple cleansed. See the temple cleansed in verses 13 through 17 there. It says that it was Jewish Passover, That's important. That helps us kind of set the the stage of what's happening in this story. It was Passover. Passover was a yearly celebration for the Jews. It still is, right? They still celebrate Passover. Um, And what they're celebrating, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and and specifically the book of Exodus, where, where the Israelites are in captivity in Egypt and God rescues them out of slavery. They were in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And God is rescuing them out of that, right? The Israelite people, God's people. And, and what he does is he sends 10 plagues against Egypt and against Pharaoh so that Pharaoh will let God's people go, right? And there's songs and everything about it. And so there's all kinds of plagues. There's locusts, there's uh, hailstorms and all kinds of things happening. The last plague, though, was where we get this idea of the Passover. God had said that at night... He was going to come through, and he was going to kill the firstborn son in every house, including Pharaoh's. Uh, And and he had a son, which was the prince, right? And so God was going to go through and kill all the firstborn sons in each household, except for the ones that he told the Israelites. He said, if you will kill a lamb or a goat, and you will take the blood and spread it on your doorpost, when the angel passes through, your house will be spared, Right? And that's exactly what happens. Um, They wake up the next morning, those with the blood on their doorposts, they were spared. Everybody else, their firstborn son, was killed. And, And God used that for Pharaoh to say, Get out of here to the Israelites. And they are freed, right? They are rescued. In that moment. And so, whenever we fast forward to John chapter 2, and we see this Passover, the Jewish Passover, it's this yearly celebration of that event, of how God freed them from slavery, right? And so, the way that they celebrate is people would come from all over to come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Um, it's said that Jerusalem at this time typically would have about 30,000 people in the city, but at Passover, it would swell to around 150,000 people. So people from all over are coming to town for Passover. Jerusalem is cluttered. (laughs) Jerusalem is very cluttered, and they've all come uh, to the temple to make their Passover sacrifice. So just picture this scene, right? There's people everywhere, animals everywhere. It's chaos. It's cluttered. And this unknown man from Galilee comes in and just starts turning everything upside down in the temple, um, at, our, at our West Conway campus, we have a food truck park um, over there called the Gravel Lot, and there's always food trucks and, and things. It's a good place if you're ever in Conway looking for something to eat or, or something like that. But every, uh, I think it's every second month or something like that, they do this marketplace event there. And there was one yesterday, and we went by, and there's all these tents set up, and there's food trucks everywhere and tents, and these little vendors will have things that they're selling, like earrings or candles or um, clothes, different things like that. And I've been studying this text all week. And so as I'm there, just this thought came into my mind. Like, what if I were to just start walking through and just flipping tables over, you know, just like earrings flying everywhere. And I started to kind of laugh just thinking about that. But, but that's kind of what's happening in this story, right? And so if you're familiar with this story, it's easy just to kind of become numb to what's happening here. But I want you to see, like, the chaos, have you ever seen a, a spooked animal? Yeah? Um, have you ever seen a lot of them spooked <laughs> in a group of people in the temple? Like this is chaos that's taking place. And so the question is, if you can kind of picture this scene of all these animals and Jesus is driving them out and it's a stampede going out of, the, out of the temple, the question then is, why did Jesus do that? <laughs> you know, like why, why did he do that? Well, there's a couple of things that drove him to do that. First, the the merchants, the people in the marketplace, they're ripping people off, essentially. Um, See, people were traveling from out of town, right? A lot of people coming into Jerusalem for Passover, and uh, they're going to need to have a sacrifice whenever they get there, some kind of animal to sacrifice. But Most of them didn't travel with an animal. It's easier to not. And so they planned on just purchasing one when they got there. And what's taking place is these merchants in the the area there of the temple, they've jacked their prices up sky high, and they are charging crazy prices for these animals for people to sacrifice, right? Essentially what they're doing is they're using the worship of God to rip people off. And Jesus doesn't like that. The other thing that's going on here um, that that would cause Jesus to act the way that he does is they're crowded up in what's called the Gentile court. Now, you need to understand the temple has several kind of areas to it. It's not just like one room that's the worship area or something like that. It's a whole thing, 14 acres. And so the main part, like you go inside the walls, the main part, the biggest part, was what's called the outer court or the Gentile court, And in that area, that's where the Gentiles could be. That's where women could be. That's where the lame and the sick, they could be. But everybody has to enter through there, right? And so that's where the most people were. And that's where this marketplace was taking place. The next uh, part of the temple was called the inner court or the Israel court. And in between these two, the Gentile court and the Israel court, there's this wall that separated the two with a sign on it that says if you are not an Israelite man, don't come in here or you will be killed, essentially, okay? So it's a big deal. Like, you don't, you don't cross through there. And so they're all crowded up in this, this Gentile court. In fact, that wall that separates the Gentile court from the Israel court, Paul talks about it in the book of Ephesians. It's just, this is a side note, but I think it's cool and you ought to see it. Whenever he's talking about the Gentiles coming to know Jesus and being included into the family of God, he says this in Ephesians chapter two, verse eleven. At that time, you Gentiles, right? And a Gentile is a non-Jew, by the way. That's us. And so, at that time, you Gentiles were without Christ. You were excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away in the outer court have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. That's talking about the wall inside of the temple that divides the outer gate and the, the, inner, and the inner court, right? And so that's kind of a big deal uh, there. In fact, in Acts 21, the people rioted and they wanted to kill Paul because they thought this meant that he was bringing people into the inner court that didn't, didn't belong. But essentially, what's happening in this story is the outer court is so cluttered that people can't do what they came to do, and that's worship God. And Jesus doesn't like that. In fact, Jesus is angry. Like, he's, he's extremely angry. He, he's turning over tables, he's throwing people out. And some people will, will read this and be like, well, Jesus, he wasn't angry, you know? He wasn't angry. And I'm like, he takes time to make a whip. <laughs> Like, he sits down and makes a whip. That's, that's called premeditated. <laughs> you know, I don't know a lot about law, but premeditated things is pretty serious, right? And so he takes time to sit down and he makes a whip. He is angry. And I would just ask, like, does that make you uncomfortable? A little bit, right? Like, if you know the character of Jesus, and it feels out of character for him to do that. Even though we know that anger is an emotion, and it's not a sin, Ephesians 4.26 says. The thing I want you to keep in mind here is remember, like we talked about in week one, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We talked about how Jesus is both fully God and fully man, right? I want you to remember that Jesus was a real person with real emotions, He's not some robot with like this cheesy grin walking around just smiling at people like you see in all the old paintings. He's a real person. He experienced emotion just like you and I do. He experienced joy and love and grief. Like Jesus cried whenever his friend died. Like He experienced all of those things just like we do. He experienced disappointment, and yes, he experienced anger, which honestly is, is kind of refreshing, Right? that Jesus, like us, experienced emotion and even anger. Now, there's a difference, though, in probably how we experience anger and how Jesus has experienced anger here. Our anger is typically selfish, isn't it? Like, if you are be honest with yourself, most of the times when you get mad, it's because you feel wronged. Either your coffee order got messed up or somebody cut you off in traffic or somebody else got the promotion and you didn't or somebody else made the team. But Jesus, here, like his anger in this story is what's called righteous anger. He's furious at the injustice that's taking place. See, they were taking advantage of people. They were cluttering the worship area for the Gentiles and they were trying to make a buck or two off the backs of people. And that's what makes Jesus angry. He doesn't like it. In fact, verse 16 says, he told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. See, he he draws back to the fact that this is my father's house, and you're turning it into a shopping center. Right? Jesus' love for his father is what fuels his anger against the corruption. He doesn't lose his temper, he's not out of control. His anger is actually a display of his love. Picture it this way. I can say that I love my wife, but if, but if I see someone who is attacking her or hurting her in some kind of way, and you saw me like seeing that, and you saw me just kind of kick back and maybe yawning and not really caring too much about it, would you believe that I loved her? Of course not, right? But if you saw me get up and let's just say I passionately go take care of that situation, because I would, or I would at least try, you know? Well, you would know that I love her. And that's what the disciples saw. And when they saw that, it says that they remembered something from scripture. Verse 17, they remembered that scripture says, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a quote directly from Psalm chapter 69, verse nine says, because zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. See, that word zeal just means great energy or passion for a cause or an objective. In Psalm 69, it's David talking about his passion, his zeal. He's crying out because he's catching heat for, for being passionate about the presence of God and the worship of God. And if you remember, we've talked over and over again about how the promised Messiah was going to come from the line of David. He's going to be a son of David, and he's going to be greater than David, 2 Samuel chapter 7 says. So, in a way, this is John making another nod to the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah. But what we see here is Jesus was passionate for God's house to be holy or to be set apart. And the main point in, in this whole scene, I believe, the main point is this. Jesus is making it clear that cluttered worship will not fly in his presence. Cluttered worship will not fly in his presence. In this scene, there is no reverence. There's, there's, they've lost the, the gravity of what worship is supposed to be. The worship of God has just become this game or this money scheme to them, and Jesus is disgusted by it. In fact, we see that he is passionate about removing anything that stands in the way of worship. Right? So, number one, we see the temple cleansed, number two, we see the temple rebuilt verses 18 through 21, we see the temple rebuilt. So, so obviously, like, Jesus comes in, he starts flipping over tables and, and running people out, and there's a stampede of animals going out. Like, obviously, that's gonna draw some attention, <laughs> right? Like, this is, a, this is a moment that's taking place, and the Jewish leaders, it says, they begin to ask Jesus, like, who do you think you are? Like, what gives you the authority to come in here and do this? You better show us some proof. You better show us some sign of your authority, and he says in verse 19, he says this, this is your sign. He says, Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, or the Jewish leader said, this temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking, it says, about the temple of his body. See, this whole thing, this whole scene has just been a moment, a statement moment to say that the temple doesn't just need to be cleaned the temple needs to be rebuilt completely and that's why Jesus came see he's not talking when he he says here's your sign you can tear down this temple and I'm going to raise it in three days he's not talking about the actual temple that they're standing in even though that's that's what they thought and it's probably what you and I would have thought if we were standing there as well right they go they go it's taken 46 years to get to this point it's been remodeled by Herod for for the last 46 years what are you talking about But John, the writer, makes it very clear what he's talking about. He's talking about himself, verse 21 says. He was speaking about the temple of his body. See, Jesus is the temple. He is God's presence on earth. Again, we talked, John 1, 14, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I told you week one that that word dwelt is the equivalent of the Hebrew word that means tabernacle or, or temple, Right? The tabernacle, the temple, is the place where, where God and, and, and earth meet. Where heaven and earth meet is, is that place. And, and Jesus is saying, That's him. And he's saying, You want your sign to see whether or not I have authority to come in and, and do this? Here's your sign Destroy this temple. I will raise it up in three days. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. Destroy this temple. That's the way they would talk about uh, a body dying as being destroyed. I will raise it up again. That's his resurrection, right? And so there's there's a couple of big things going on here, a couple of things that, that you and I need to see. First, his death and his resurrection provides a new temple, a new meeting place for God and man. This is why we don't have to travel to some temple in some foreign land or city. That, that he is the new temple. Through him, through Jesus, we have access to God, right? He says in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, what, comes to the Father except through me. He is the access. Like, he is the new temple. He, he's the new temple. He's the place where heaven and earth meet, Jesus, God in the flesh, okay? The second thing this points us to is that he came to completely tear down and rebuild the corrupt sacrificial system. <laughs> the corrupt sacrificial system needed to be torn down and rebuilt. See, in, in the first few pages of the Bible, sin enters the world, right? And that's a big problem. There's consequences that take place uh, for that, that our sin separates us from God. That's what we learn reading reading the Bible. And you and I experience sin every single day, don't we? We feel the effects of it in our own life, we see it in our own hearts, we see sin. And the Bible says that that separates us from God. Well, the process for removing sin in the Old Testament was this sacrificial system that God put in place. And they were continually having to offer uh, animals as sacrifice. Because scripture says that, that the atonement of sin requires blood. So they were just constantly offering sacrifice after sacrifice, even in this story, like they're at the temple for Passover. They're bringing their lamb to the temple to offer their sacrifice for Passover and they've done it the year before and they'll do it next year as well, right? And what would happen is they would would bring the the lamb in and, and the Israelite men would take their lamb and they would go through that gate between the outer court and the inner court. They would go into the Israel court with their lamb, just the man, right? And they would let in 30 of them at a time, three rows of 10. It's all Jewish meaning and and different things like that. They would let 30 in at a time. Those 30 Israelite men would slit the throat of that lamb and the priest would take a silver bowl, catch the blood in it, and then throw the blood on the base of the altar. And they did that for thousands of families that came through the temple. Just a never-ending process constantly having to make more and more sacrifices here in this in this system and in order to be right with God they had to do it there had to be blood that's what scripture says but Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this it says Hebrews 10 4 but it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin so they're having to make all these sacrifices, but really like the blood of a bull, it's not gonna actually atone for my sin. Like that's a huge deal, sinning against a holy God, right? And so they were constantly just having to make more and more sacrifices because the blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews ten four says, can't take away any sin. And so Jesus came to completely overturn that whole corrupt sacrificial system, and he came to be the final sacrifice that was needed. He's the final one. That was his purpose in coming. In fact, he's called the the promised Passover lamb. That's what John the Baptist calls him in chapter one where he says, behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, right? So Jesus came to be that Passover lamb that would come to be slain and his blood would cover us. He willingly went to the cross. Like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah 53, seven says. And he came to be the final sacrifice that was needed. For our sin. And so Hebrews 10 says that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, but the writer of Hebrews goes on a few verses later to say this in verse 10. By this, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. His death and resurrection is a once for all time sacrifice. Verse 11, every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, but that can never take away sin. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. See, through him, the work is finished. Once and for all. One sacrifice for all. In fact, um, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, you're not gonna find this temple standing. Just 40 years after this, uh, Rome comes in and destroys the temple. You know, so there's not even a temple that you could go to to do this anymore. And there's not going to be another temple. Like even in the new Jerusalem, in heaven, God's not going to rebuild another temple. In fact, it says that, Revelation uh, chapter 21, verse 22, the writer says, in the new Jerusalem, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord, the God, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. See, we don't need A temple. We don't need to be continually offering sacrifices because Jesus, through his one-time death and resurrection, is that final payment needed for our sin. And that's good news. That's great news, that he came to completely turn the concept and system of the temple on its head, and he did. His death and his resurrection completely changed history, and it changes each of us. It changes us. Right? And it's through that rebuilt temple that finally, number three, the temple is redefined. The temple is redefined. We see that in verse twenty two. So so Jesus' statement obviously confused all the religious leaders, all the Jewish leaders. Like when he says, I'm gonna tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days, um, that confused them, it confused the disciples, Um, like I said, would probably even confuse us. But all of that happened pre-Jesus' death and, and resurrection. They didn't know about it yet. But after they see his death and his resurrection, everything clicked for them, right? Verse 22, John kind of, he, he's telling the story and he kind of gives us an insight to what happens like three and a half years later for them. He says in verse 22, so, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. They put two and two together, Eugene Peterson says, and it says that they believed. They believed. They believed. There's that word that John uses over and over again in the book of John, believe. They believed, and John the writer is hoping you do too. In fact, that's his purpose, John 20 verse 31, but these things that we have in the book of John are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's That's the purpose. That's the call of the gospel. The invitation of the gospel is to believe in the finished work of what Jesus has done on your behalf. Your sin separates you from God. Your sin demands a sacrifice, and Jesus, our Savior, came to this earth in the flesh, God in the flesh, to dwell amongst us, and he goes to the cross as the Passover lamb, spreading his blood for you. And if you believe in him, Well, scripture says that his blood covers you and God passes over and spares your life. You're spared. That's the good news of the gospel. And so if you don't know Jesus today, I wanna extend that invitation to you to today. Place your trust and your belief in him. Like don't wait anymore. (laughs) Believe in him. And when you do, right? So if you're a believer in this room, You've placed your faith and your belief in Him. Well, this is what Scripture says now. The temple's been re- redefined. I want you to see what Paul calls you. 1 Corinthians three, 16. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. Did you hear that? That just said that you, believer, are God's temple. That, that his spirit, the spirit of God, lives in you. And because of that, you are holy. <laughs> That's what you are. I, I'm just quoting Paul to you right there. That's what Paul says about you, that you are the temple of God. And his spirit lives in you and you are Holy, But more than that, more than just on an individual level, the Bible also says this about us together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. This, this passage comes from that passage of Paul's talking to the Gentiles about being separated by that wall between the outer court and the inner court. And that wall of hostility has been torn down. A few verses later, he says this. So you are no longer foreigners and strangers. That wall's been torn down. You're fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. What's that, what's that saying? Corporately, we are the household of God. That dividing wall has been torn down. The lamb's blood has brought our freedom, and we, as a church, we celebrate that together. See, the temple's been redefined. And what the New Testament says is the temple is you, and it's me, and it's us. So what do we do with this? Like, what's the the take home? What's the application for us? It's this. If we are the temple, and we are, if if jesus is passionate about removing anything in the temple that stands in the way of worship and he is then it's worth asking what does your temple look like what does your life look like on a corporate level what does our temple look like what does our church look like is there cluttered worship is there cluttered worship in your life? Or is there cluttered worship in our, in our church that needs to be done away with? Are there things that Jesus needs to come in and move around and flip over and, and drive out so that the worship of God is primary, right? Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, I believe the holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains in him. And so if you're willing, I wanna, I wanna challenge you to pray a very bold prayer today. Examining what your life looks like. What does your temple look like? Pray this prayer out of Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday.